that Epictetus provides a list. He says we our roles, some examples, we could be son, father, brother, citizen, husband, wife, neighbor, fellow traveler, and then ruler and subject, which is again these, this actual political relationship of ruler and subject. And so the point is the the ruler has a role, someone like Marcus Aurelius, maybe someone like Seneca in terms of being part of that ruling class. They have a to to act with justice, they have a certain way they should act towards their subjects, or you know. In our case, we don't have subjects today, but, you know, citizens. And I would say the citizens then have an obligation, a relationship towards government. Hi, all. Welcome to Stoa Conversations. My name is Caleb Ontiveros. And in this conversation, Michael and I discuss the case for and against engaging in politics. It's uh, an example of a conversation where we're thinking through, you know, what do these ancient and modern perspectives have to say about the role of politics in the good life. Before jumping into that, we do have two upcoming events. First, there's a free virtual workshop this December 19th on how to think like a Stoic. Register at stoicmeditation.com workshop. We just extended the size of the event. So if you weren't able to join previously, you should be able to do so now. Second, Michael and I are running another cohort of our Stoicism Applied course in January. If you'd like to start your year with us and with others who are seriously focused on walking the Stoic path, learn more about our course at stoameditation.com course. Here is our conversation. Welcome to Stoic Conversations. My name is Caleb Ontiveros. And I'm Michael Trombley. And in this conversation, we are going to be chatting about politics. So we're going to be talking about you know, different ancient views about whether one should be engaged in politics at all and what that looks like in the modern world. You know, what our takeaways should be for moderns in terms of how we engage in politics. I think for a lot of people, sort of political news, debate, discussion is just sort of the water we swim in. It's very easy for some people to say, be engaged, whether that looks like voting, some forms of uh, activism uh, and debate with others. Uh, but for others, they may not be so uh, involved in politics at all, may not be a consideration, a live consideration in their life. So there's an interesting question, you know, what should the role of politics be in a life? And of course, that's something the ancient uh, philosophers talked about. So I'm going to put forth a case against engaging in politics, sort of grounded in uh, Epicureanism, but I'll of course tie it to the Stoics as well. And then Michael's going to push back against that and we'll see uh, see how that goes. Yeah, I'm going to try my best. Another thing, another reason why I think this conversation is interesting is I think if you think of something like utilitarianism or consequentialism as being very other oriented, you think of those as very political philosophies, like how, what, you know, what policy can we put in place that maximizes um, happiness the most. Then if you think of philosophy on a continuum, on one side you have the utilitarianism, the consequentialism, 
And then maybe you think on the other side, you have something like virtue ethic, which is just like individual focused, perfecting your character, looking at your own happiness. And I think whatever answer we end up on, I mean, at the very least, it's it, the the truth is more nuanced than that. And and I I think that you know even if you're even if you believe in virtue ethics, even if you're studying stoicism, um, you should at least have a position on politics, whether that's one of intentional passivity or intentional involvement. I, I don't think it's something you can kind of abstain from thinking about just because you're doing a virtue ethics. Yeah, that's right. So. Um, that's a that last point I think is especially important, which is that the Stoics, if they support political passivity, it's going to be a reflective version. One needs to have good reasons for deciding to not engage in political activity. It's not a matter of um, simply abstaining from political activity because that's what. Uh, feels right or what strikes one as the right thing to do with minimal reflection. Yeah, let's do it. All right, cool. So I think it's useful to ground so the case against political engagement in the rival Stoic school of the Epicureans, and then we'll see whether there's that much disagreement between a modern Stoic view and the Epicurean considerations. So of course, we always need to decide, you know, what are we talking about when we're talking about politics? Here, I'm especially concerned with engaging in political activity, whether that's voting, running for office, discussing politics, consuming the news. And we're, we'll talk about ancient cities, ancient states, but you know, keep in mind, we're talking about whether one should engage in politics today. That's the ultimate consideration. We're not doing some sort of you know, historical review. Voting is the paradigmatic activity here. That's how people in the States, uh, the United States, Canada, uh, and elsewhere engage in politics. That's what we'll sort of use as our baseline. You know, I know some listeners might not well, you know, might be in a different political arrangement. So that's, uh, might maybe some difference, but that's what, that's what I'll use as the sort of the paramedic activity that most people, uh, use to sort of orient themselves in politics. You know, why do they discuss political matters? Why do they consume the news? It's to ideally inform, you know, how they vote and how they interact with others and influence them to vote in particular ways or not. So that's what we're talking about. The Epicureans, this is a rival school to the Stoics. We have an episode, a uh, past episode on Epicureanism. I also have a discussion with Emily Austin, uh, where you can learn more about Epicureanism in general. But they have this view that was generally negative on engaging in politics. Epicurus has this line that he advised his followers to live unnoticed. And what he is doing there is pushing back against the norms of using politics to pursue glory, pursue reputation. So especially if you think about from the Stoic perspective, we have indifference like wealth, power, status. Well, politics is one of the best ways 
to get status and power and perhaps wealth as well. And Epicurus doesn't have that framework, of course, but he notes that pursuing wealth, status, reputation through politics just is a source of delusion and suffering. So it's better to abstain from it in his view. So, you know, but we need to, we need to flesh that out some more. The main reason that engaging in politics is less than ideal for Epicurus is that, you know, it's bad for us. And I think we can also add that it's bad for the city or the polis. It's bad for us because politics is essentially a domain of conflict and delusions. It's people pursuing glory, pursuing higher status, um, pursuing advantages for their own group. Um, many seek meaning from politics, but you know, political engagement does not lead to happiness in any robust sense. And that's true for the Epicureans, because for them, the happy life is a tranquil one. It's the one full of pleasure. Um, but it's, one can also plausibly argue that it's true for the Stoics. So we'll get into some complications for that, of course. So that's the idea. One argument, it's bad for us. Why is it bad for us? Uh, because it's this domain of conflicts, delusion, in particular delusion is overvaluing things that do not lead to happiness, what the Stoics would call indifference, whether that's wealth or status. The second argument uh, is that it's bad for others, for most people, to engage with politics. One way to think about this is when we select juries, we require people who are on that jury to be competent because they're making decisions about how much punishment someone is owed. And in some cases, you know, they're going to be making decisions that concern matters of life and death. Um, and as such, we have strict requirements for someone to be on a jury. And so we should expect the same for anyone who engages in political activity. And the, fa the fact of the matter is that most of us citizens are ignorant or irrational when it comes to political matters. There's a sense in which this is just incentivized by democracy. We don't have people uh, you know, looking over our shoulders to ensure that we are behaving as excellent citizens. Instead, we have a, you know, effectively a candy store of different forms of political entertainment that we get to consume, uh, that we get to feel good consuming. Um, and that these forms of political entertainment, whether it's online, TV, or fun conversations with others, are not oriented around political expertise in, in the best sense. You know, they're not oriented around producing true views about politics. And as such, we should expect most people to, you know, not be not be experts when it comes to coming to decisions about, you know, what's the optimal policy, what's the optimal candidate, what's the most virtuous candidates for a given role. So this is not a full ban on politics by any means, but it's a consideration that I think should push people towards, you know, maybe the view that uh, politics is a special domain 
it's sort of like, you know, being a excellent doctor, uh, being uh, an excellent lawyer, computer programmer, what have you. Some people are going to be suited towards political engagement, but others are not. Um, so that's a that's that that quick argument. Um, politics, engaging in politics, bad for us. First argument. Second argument. It's bad for the polis, in particular. What's bad having this norm that everyone should be engaged in politics instead we should think of it more as a specialized career. So I think I'll, I'll wrap wrap up there with that, that first those first two salvos, if you will. What's uh, what's your take on those, Michael? Yeah, I guess two things. I mean, when you started explaining the Epicurean position, I wasn't very persuaded. I mean, it felt to me a bit like you know. Food, like saying food is bad for you and then giving this example of like candy, like only eating candy all day or something. And it's, it seems to me to become this much weaker position that politics can be bad for you. And I think everybody agrees politics can be bad for you, kind of political rhetoric, um, you know, kind of this, this strong attachment to identity, this that, that leads you to, you know, not thinking about what's right or wrong, but just thinking about what the party line is, this tendency for it to make you, you know, kind of, um, rile you up either in terms of like anger or fear of these extreme emotions. I'm, I'm very on board with this idea that politics can be bad for you and needs to be engaged with in a certain way. I guess I'm just not getting this like stronger claim that it is bad for you, but maybe the position, correct me if I'm wrong here, Caleb, at the end there was something along, something like I, what I was taking you to say at the end was that because it can be bad for you, it's only the kind of thing you either really commit to or you don't do at all. You know, something like, I don't know, rock climbing or adventureness camping. It's like, this is a dangerous thing. So be very, you know, there's some people that love it and it's good for them and it's beneficial, but don't feel pressured to um, do this dangerous activity. It's totally fine to abstain from it. And if you do do it, commit to it. That's the, posi the position, something like that. Not that it's always bad for you, right? Yeah, I think so. I think maybe the, to be clear, the position that I'm aiming to argue against is this view that part of the you know, good life is to fulfill your roles. And one of those roles that every citizen has in a modern state is being an excellent citizen. Got it. And what does being an excellent citizen uh, involve? Well, at minimum, it involves some level of political engagement. So that's, uh, that's the view that... Uh, I'm aiming, aiming to argue against. So it's it's okay to, you, not that in all cases you shouldn't engage in politics, but rather that in some cases it's totally fine if you're politically passive and you can still have a great life by both like a happiness and morality sense. Yeah, that's right. So I think, you know, some people have a general view that it's good to engage in politics and that you're making a mistake, you're being a bad citizen when you're failing to do so, and that's the sort of thing I'm trying to trying to push against. Yeah, I can say more about the first argument, but is there any anything else you want to say by way of a reaction? Yeah, I, mean, I, I guess going to the second the second argument, why would it be bad for the state? I mean, it would be bad for the state. You think the the polis or the country or the city would be better off if fewer people were politically engaged? I, I guess I'm I'm that that seems very unintuitive to me. Not that I necessarily disagree, but could you say more to that point? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, well, let's, so one is 
for that for that for that line of thought we sort of i suppose we have two lines of thought on the table one is the the thought that politics can be bad for you or politics is bad for us and i you know we need to be i need to be a little bit more precise there it's not necessarily always bad for us but the claim is nonetheless stronger than merely the fact that it can be bad for you but that it has these features that uh make it especially likely to be bad for many people and you know it's a sort of thing where for some people it's better not to go to uh bars at all than sort of risk uh attending to going to a bar when they know they're the sort of person who uh is better off not drinking at all than trying to risk drink well um it's, it's dangerous maybe something like this yeah yeah but it's even so it's got to be can't just be that it's dangerous but it's got to be a little bit stronger than that but um because i think i think everyone would certainly agree that politics is is dangerous although uh sometimes it's that may be hard to remember but i think the what you know the anti-politics view needs to do what the epicurean person needs to do what someone uh in the modern state now needs to show is that give more empirical evidence for why politics would be would be bad for someone um and i think that's the same kind of thing i need to do to answer your other you know your other point you know why would it be bad for the state to have more people engage in politics why would it be good for the state to have uh, fewer engage in politics i think the main response is that it's the typical citizen in modern states, at least like uh, America, tends to be ignorant and irrational of basic political facts in a way that we don't accept for other domains. So there's a decent literature on how politically informed people are. And in general, the answer is people are not politically informed. There's uh, Brian Kaplan's book entitled The Myth of the Rational Voter that sort of is one was pretty influential for me. I think it came out mid-2000s or something of that sort. And then there's been a slew of books trying to update that picture. But in general, they find that voters are not so informed. They often disagree with experts. Experts themselves often have serious blind spots uh, and may not in fact be uh, actual experts in many cases so so is this yeah go ahead is this a philosopher king argument then basically like we should leave the philosophy up to the people who are very well equipped to do it and everybody else should just leave it alone yeah i think it's similar to that in the sense that we should have almost like a competency requirement for engaging in politics and that there's nothing uh First, it's a hard bar to meet for many of us. And second, there, there are many competency requirements we have a hard time meeting, but that doesn't mean that we, can, we cannot achieve happiness in some form or another. I mentioned doctors, lawyers, computer programmers, whatever. So it's competency requirements on political activity. That's, uh, that's the way, that, way to think about it. Yeah, that makes sense. I was gonna say doctors, lawyers, uh, philosophy podcasters, these these types of really skilled 
skilled, you know, think of these skilled professions when you're making your lists. Okay. I mean, that makes it like, I, I think I'm with you. Um, I guess another question then becomes, so you talk about competency, but then like, how, well, how do you know if it's right for you? So if it might be wrong for you, it might be right for you. How do you know if it's right for you? Um, what would be, how would you tell if, if you should be passive or not? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, and I think it's the sort of thing that one needs to be careful here to not have the kind of argument that thoughtful people respond to and think, oh, that's a reason for passivity and then exit politics. Um, where, and then people who maybe are less reflective about these matters just continue on, uh, resulting in uh, worse, say, uh, performance for a state or resulting in even more injustice. So I think that it's very difficult to answer that broadly, but I suppose on there are a number of considerations here. So one is something like how well do you know basic political facts? Do you have the uh, record of judgments that are accurate relative to others? Or do you think you're the kind of person who can pick out people who would serve as good representatives, good operatives on the political stage? So those are like this a handful of considerations, and I suppose you can just keep on iterating through them in a way it's similar to the question, you know, how do you pick experts at all? And then asking, am I the kind of person who would be suited if perhaps not for being an expert, to being the kind of person who can contribute in a positive manner? So that's a vague uh, response, but I wonder, I'm curious what your, what your take is, uh, even at that level. I mean, yeah. So the, so the argument is something along the lines of like, look, we, we want we want smart, qualified, um, engaged. So people that are like up to date with facts, people engaged in politics as much as possible. So we, we want to select a subsection of that. And so there's going to be a certain, there's going to be a certain like uh, basic like capability, but then there's also going to be, I think, a desire right? So somebody who might have lower capability who says, no, I really care about this and spends time engaging, reading, learning, then, then that person, um, you know, should, should be able to enter into that as well. So I, I think it's, I think it's a combination of that. I mean, if you think of it, something like lawyer, doctor, engineer, the examples you were giving, these are things that we, we typically do that process through some sort of education. I mean, it just sounds again, very platonic mm -hmm. for me. So, so those listening who've read the the Republic or the, in, in Plato's Republic, he talks about this threefold division between types of people. And one of those people are, you know, the philosophers and that we, we pull out these types of people through an education process and the philosophy, the philosopher group should be set up to kind of deal with the political matters. It just sounds very much like this. You identify those competencies through some sort of combination of uh, education, which looks at talents, but then also people's, effort and you know how hard they're willing to work and focus on it yeah that's right i suppose one way to think about instead of asking you know, am i the sort of person who's suited for politics 
perhaps a more useful question is what does producing good political actors look like and how can I push the needle forward to produce people who are better at politics? Uh, and that's going to involve some amount of changes. That's going to involve changes to education, changes to systems for selecting people who have a good shot at being political uh, actors. Yeah, and I mean, to, as it were. to an extent, we probably already do that to some extent in terms of, at least in Canada, in the non-democratic, the non-electoral part, like, right, you go to school, um, you do political science, stuff like that, you intern, you start working in, in um, the provincial or the federal government behind the scenes. So there, there is this kind of, there is already this kind of like mechanism in place for that, for the uh, public service. Uh, but ironically, or I mean, interestingly, not for the, not for the elected portion. Although I'm sure, I'm sure there's some sort of internal politics there about, you know, who gets put forward as party leaders and things like this. Yeah. But I, I, the, the, the thing that I find compelling about this or the thing, I guess I want to, I want to, I, I, I don't like this account of like, there's this basic. I, I think whatever the bar is, it seems to me like a bar that most people could pass if they spent time working at it. I, I don't think the bar mm -hmm. should be some sort of unattainable point. I don't think that's, I, I don't think that seems unjust to me in one way, but it also seems to be unfair. Like I'm, I'm happy with this idea of like democracy, but like kind of qualified democracy where, um, you know, if you're, if you're, if you spend some time educating yourself or learning yourself, that, that seems to me, um, better. Maybe one way to make progress on that is to go back to Epicurus and Emily Austin in her book argues that it's not Epicureans are, of course, they care about justice, as should we all, but they argued for one way to think about this view is that you're, one, you're arguing that there needs to be a higher bar for political engagement. And what's in, what sorts of questions or tests would an Epicurean give for political engagement? Well, here are three candidates. You know, one is, does my political involvement help people get the essential things they need? That's sort of the test of necessity. Then there's a test on status. Would I be happy to see my project succeed even if absolutely no one knew that I supported it? and I received no recognition for my work. That's the second. And then finally, there's the chance test. Can I emotionally accept that my project will meet resistance and may even fail, may fail to be uh, accomplished, at least in my own lifetime? Or very similar to a premeditatio malorum uh, exercise uh, in the Stoic view. So this, I think doesn't get at you know what are the features that make someone be competent to be involved in politics but i think does offer some useful details for would my political engagement be good for me not just in the sense that would advance my selfish interests but would it help me flourish would it help me live uh, virtuously if i was engaged in politics yeah so i like this a lot so it's like a threefold test to see if you're doing politics for the right reasons and doing it in a way that it's kind of emotionally sustainable. So necessity, are you, are you looking for something necessary, trying to get people what they need, 
status? Are you doing it for kind of social or like reputational reasons? Are you okay if you don't get those? And if you are, then you're not doing it for the wrong reasons. And then the chance test, which is to say, you know, are you okay if the, with the chance of this failing, which kind of shows that you'll be kind of emotionally robust if it does fail. What, what do you say about somebody who feels like the necessity test goes up against the chance test? That's what it seems like to me. Like, let's say if I'm part of some group that doesn't have rights, let's say, and wants rights, I might say, look, my political involvement is a necessity, but I fail the chance test. I can't emotionally accept that my project might fail. That will crush me. But nonetheless, because of the necessity, I, I'm still going to participate. Yeah, yeah. I suppose, I think um, there's this, oh, one way of getting this question is sometimes modern Stoics might be preoccupied with ensuring that their emotional state uh, is correct before thinking about what actions are right. And in some cases, doing the right action may be more important than ensuring that you maintain emotional tranquility or something That's like exactly that. That's exactly what I'm saying, yeah. Yeah, so we're, we're not sages. We are progressors. Many of us have emotional vices, but it's, I think, would be misplaced to spend too much time preoccupied with someone who stood up for their own rights when they were being seriously mistreated, but did so as a, someone who was seriously, you know, enraged or something like this. Um, and it's true that the sage would not feel rage, even if they were, say, enslaved, you know, as in the case of Epictetus, but focusing on that in cases where the harm or rights violation, what what have you, is so severe, so obvious, can be a misplaced focus, I think, especially for you know imperfect and perfect beings like us. So you know, it always depends on the concrete details. Sometimes in fact, us especially as people get into larger groups, the wrath may become so misplaced that the activism becomes itself not effective, even if it's responding to something, a, a serious need. But I think that, you know, as a general heuristic, thinking about the actions in addition to, you know, you know, always need to think about both the actual, the action. Uh, and if you're thinking about that well, then perhaps it's okay if the emotional state isn't ideal. Yeah, I think you just put that really well, Caleb. Like I've never thought about I've never thought about that before, but I think that nails it. This idea that as progressing Stoics, we often worry so much about equanimity, not not, you know, not going to emotional extremes. But sometimes, you know, if you're in a level of if you're at a level of progression, you know, virtue might require you to do something that you're not you haven't progressed enough to do that with like emotional resilience in the moment. And mm. as long as, as you said, you've thought about it carefully, you're sure it's the right thing, then yeah, you're going to have to step outside your comfort zone sometimes. And I think that's better than staying inside that comfort zone and keeping a very small circle of action. Um, so I think that test, that chance test, you know, am I okay with the chance that I'll fail? 
that's a good kind of test for making sure that something won't upset you. But it's maybe not the, the best test for will I do it or not, you know? Yeah, that's that's interesting. I think um, in a way that might be too Epicurean for me to support, I suppose. It's important to keep in mind. And I think a good rule of uh, perhaps a good test for pushing you towards being in an ideal emotional state, but it doesn't seem like it should be a necessary condition in, so, in many cases for at least, at least the fact that your task might not be accomplished for engaging in, in political activity. Yeah, I almost think, yeah, yeah. I, 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 we can move on. I don't want to stay on this point for too long, but I almost think of the chance test as a type of premeditatio morum. So that you think of, I can think of the chance test as this idea of like, okay, so you've thought of all the good things that will happen if you, you know, you run for politics, you got elected uh, and everybody loves you. Okay, now imagine the bad parts of it, right? Like you quit your job, you spend all this money to run, you fail miserably, everybody thinks you're uh, a terrible politician. Um, do you still want to engage in it? And it's kind of a premeditatum alarm where you can get to the root of like why, why you care about it, why it matters to you. And I think, mm -hmm. I think in that sense, super valuable, helpful exercise. And, but I think there's this other category of premeditatum malorum. Wow, that malorum, that bad really still freaks me out, but I'm going to have to do it anyway. Uh, because, you know, in this case, as you said, it involves, you know, standing up for something that's right or standing up, you know, for, for again, either myself or a group of people that require justice. Yeah. So, but, but, but I, I really like those, you know, that, that three-part test, that Epicurean strategy is really, really helpful. Yeah, I think so. So one thing we have not, uh, one thing, one other aspect I should add to the Epicurean case is just to emphasize again that the, as these tests show, the Epicurean can still make a strong case that they care about justice. It's just that justice may not always be realized through political activity. And in some regimes, the, this isn't not the argument I'd make for modern democracies and some regimes, you know, like the game might just be so corrupted, it's better not to play. And I think that might be a, a good one line way of capturing how Epicurus, in fact, saw the politics of his time where ultimately he saw it largely as a pursuit of power, not always through legal means and as such it might be better to isolate oneself in one's own community and create a just community amongst your friends family members and strangers you you encounter instead of playing the game at the larger scale of a city uh, in ancient greece yeah i think that's charitable so this idea of still caring for others um but look, if I if I can do this in a more effective way with uh, less emotional turmoil by doing it maybe in a at a community level, um, that then the Epicureans are recommending that. I guess the the you know the the problem here though is when those things intersect, right? When you, when you get community politics or you get larger political issues that are affecting you at the community level, then that becomes an interesting point about when to get involved. But I, I'm pretty compelled by this picture of, you know, there's this idea that like not everybody should go to university if they don't want to go to university. Like there's a lot of stress and, and 
pain that comes if you get forced into a certain path because you think that's the right path for you. I'm very partial towards this. The, I like that idea of, of thinking about politics the same way. This idea that, you know, this is not necessarily a game you have to play. And if you do play it, take it seriously because it's a, it's a dangerous one and it's one that is filled with people that are, you know, in it for the wrong reason. Um, and so, so you take that job seriously, pay attention, educate yourself. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's, well, that's well put. That's a little bit less strong than the initial case I was representing, but seems closer to the truth, which is demoting a citizen as a necessary role, I think, at least when, if, you, as you, if you understand the citizen and sort of like um, the case that you need to vote or something at that level. Of course, you should be a good citizen in other respects in which in which we use uh, the term, be a good community member, a good neighbor, and so forth. But uh, you know, the view is demote that from something that's a required role and ensure that if you're the sort of person who engages in politics, then you you know ought to do do your best to take it seriously. It's a dangerous enterprise. Uh, as you said, it's one in which thinking well is difficult. Uh, for a number of reasons. So one should, as an individual, try cultivate thinking well about those matters uh, and do the same for whatever whatever groups you might happen to be involved in as well. Cool. Um, cool. Always good to have some Epicurean perspective here. Should yeah, yeah. Should I attempt a stoic case for politics? Yeah, yeah. Let's let's hear the the, the stoic case. Do you think the stoic case pushes against that less ambitious? A case against against politics or uh or not yeah i mean i think so i think that hmm, i i think stoicism would demand that you act in a way within your power to help people in your community and fulfill your roles and your and your um obligations to those people in your community and i i think you're going to be hard pressed to argue that some form of political involvement doesn't fall in that so when you say voting is the paradigmatic behavior, then you're going to be hard. I, I don't think I don't think Stoicism requires you to go and run for government, but I think you're going to be hard pressed to say that the Stoic has a justification for not voting, which is such an example of something that is you know falls within your power. It's totally within, like totally up to you to educate yourself and to be involved at least in these small incremental ways that cumulatively make an impact. You know, to to help yourself and to help others. Another way to so the way to ground that in the actual theory. So Stoicism has these four cardinal virtues. So obviously you're supposed to act in accordance with nature and act in a way that's right. But you say, well, what does that look like? And so the Stoics appeal to these four cardinal virtues: um, courage, temperance, wisdom, and justice. Justice is about you know people getting what people getting what they're due. It's about um, treating others appropriately. So it's about this this kind of social participation. So one way in which you're not going to be wise unless you're acting or you're not going to be virtuous unless you're acting in a way that that cap that embodies justice. And so one of the ways that we embody justice is we fulfill the Stoics talk about our roles, talk about role ethics. So we fulfill our roles. So the idea is, you know, you you have certain relationships with the people in your community. You're not an island. You don't exist separate of these people. You exist as part of a broader community and you have roles and relationships to those people. So Epictetus provides a list. 
know, he says we our roles, some examples, we could be son, father, brother, citizen, husband, wife, neighbor, fellow traveler, and then ruler and subject, which is again these this actual political relationship of ruler and subject. And so the point is the the ruler has a role, someone like Marcus Aurelius, maybe someone like Seneca, closer to Seneca in terms of being part of that ruling class. They have a to to act with justice, they have a certain way they should act towards the um towards their subjects or you know in our case we don't have subjects today but you know citizens and i would say the citizens then have an obligation a relationship towards government which is to say if you don't agree with something vote opposite to that if you can get involved in a certain capacity in a way that uh, fits your other roles and matches your character then to do that and so i think engaging in politics is one of those key roles is 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 the way that you are a good citizen. It's the way that you are um, a good member of your city, you know, state and country or whatever level it is. I think if anything, probably Stoicism encourages more municipal politics, more kind of focus at a, at a neighborly level, at a smaller level. So maybe if, if there was a Stoic politics, maybe the shifting away from being outraged at something you can't really control at a macro level and being consciously involved in what you can control or, or have a stronger influence on on a micro level, which is, you know, the the policies in your in your city, the policies in your neighborhood, and things like that. You know, you can consider all of these Stoics who have been involved in politics, right? Marcus Aurelius, Seneca, obviously, um, and I think in in their case, they 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 used Stoicism to navigate these roles that they found themselves in. So not everybody has to try to be Marcus Aurelius. Not everybody has to try to be emperor. That doesn't make any sense. But I think that Stoicism requires you to, to participate in that process the same way it, the same way it has restrictions on Marcus Aurelius's behavior as emperor. It has kind of obligations on your behavior as citizen and everything's going well when, when both sides are playing that role and both sides are playing that part. And if you abstain from your part, well, you know, it doesn't really matter how good the people in government are if you're not really participating when you're not playing that role to keep this system working. That would be that would be my counter argument. And so I think I think that when I, when I if I was a Stoic responding to the Epicurean, I would say, great point that Sto that politics is dangerous. Great point that people often get into it for the wrong reasons, and you shouldn't be naive about why you're attracted to it. You should be very you should nip it in the bud if you're interested because you want power or you want money, or you want influence or reputation. Those are all dangerous temptations. And these aren't even, the, this isn't even a good place to get it. So you got to be really careful about that. You got to really be honest about that. That being said, you know, what are your relationships to the people in your community? What are your obligations in the community? How can you help fulfill those? And in ways that are in your power and achievable, that's obviously probably going to look like voting. It's going to look like getting involved at a local level and maybe having some involvement at a, at a larger level like that. If you are, if you have the specific talents and proclivities, that's another thing about role ethics. And I'll, I'll let you respond in a second, Caleb. But um, another thing about role ethics is like really paying attention to your talents and your skills. So stoicism, what we were talking about is like only get involved in politics if you're talented at it or you have the disposition for it. And I think stoicism, it's it's more nuanced than Epicureanism because it allows both those options. Like, yeah, if you're talented at it, get involved at a bigger level, make that your life, run for government, work in the government, um, work in politics, sorry, get involved in politics, do that kind of work. But if you're not talented at it, 
or you're not disposed towards it, you don't like it, still do your part at the smaller level. So that that would be my stoic view. And I think the stoic view would be that, look, you're, you're by Epicurean, you're right to be cautious. You're right to not throw yourself headlong into something that's dangerous, but to detach yourself completely is to be selfish, to be self-oriented. It's to focus on your pleasure instead of, or it's to focus on your equanimity. You know, you're, you're, you're not being, uh, not running the risk of being disappointed or frustrated in, in exchange. You're not giving people uh, what they deserve, which is, um, you know, proper citizen to citizen relationship. What do you think about that? Yeah. So I think that's a, that's a strong case. That was, that was eloquently put. My reticence about that case is that I think it understates how demanding being a good citizen is um you know people are making judgments about complicated topics in economics foreign policy uh, issues that touch on questions of human nature science and getting up to speed on all of those you know being the sort of person who as a generalist thinks well enough to make decisions in those matters, I think is non-trivial. Of course, in modern day democracies, we often have, you know, sort of vote by simple cues or proxy. You know, you're choosing some representative, usually a representative who belongs to some party. And you might think, oh, well, I don't need to solve some complex issue of economics. I can just pick the more reliable party. And that's not as hard. And the issue with that is that there, you know, are multiple people listening to this podcast now who might have that reaction and they only disagree on what that party is, right? Uh, they you know, think it should obviously be one, someone else thinks it should obviously be another. I think that, so that, I think that's the, the main kind of pushback. The point about, I think, local politics is interesting. I, do, I think I do agree that the Stoic might push more for engaging in local politics one because perhaps in some sense it's uh, less demanding to be sort of epistemically virtuous in those matters and also because you know if it's a you know local matter of your neighborhood a city that perhaps is not so large it's very likely that you're going to have unique information that's should be accounted for and hence your judgment might be much more useful and in those cases so to this view uh to the view you have is that being a good citizen is exceptionally demanding and if you're thinking about creating an ideal a just state you might want strong res restrictions on political engagements and there's there's this question of scale so perhaps it's going to be easier for people to contribute at a local level than a national one. That's my uh, reaction to that. Yeah, I mean, I think so that there's that idea of like this knowledge point, which is to say, look, yeah, at a local level, you might just know more, it might be easier to have a good sense of it. Because like not everybody's going to be perfect, right? I don't want to ascribe it. And Marcus Aurelius wasn't perfect. Like nobody in politics has ever been perfect. The, the standard can't be one of being the perfect philosopher king. That's just, we just can't have too high of a standard either, right? You got kind of shitty doctors, 
you got, you know, not every lawyer is like, you know, great. Like you can't have this, you can't have this unbelievable standard. The other thing I think that is missing is this kind of, um, uh, there, there's a kind of function to voting, which is like a signaling, which is like, Hey, I'm here. Like, Hey, this is what I think. Notice me, you know, pay attention to me when you're ta having these greater conversations. Um, and so I think that like, you can have a lot of knowledge on yourself personally, right? Like you can have a lot of knowledge about, maybe I don't have a knowledge about who the best person is to run the country, but I have a knowledge about what I feel and I can kind of signal that through my vote. And that signals to the, to people in positions of power, you know, what the demographic of, of the country's like or how people are feeling. So to abstract that out, trying to get more particular here, there's a, there's a type of political involvement that is valid and is helpful that is not just like incredibly accurate policy decision-making, right? And sometimes that can just be kind of like signaling through a vote your sentiment about something. And I think that's better done because what the vote is is not, the vote is, can, the vote can represent how you feel, right? That can be what you're saying. You're saying, I feel this way. And it doesn't necessarily have to be, if you were the only one doing it, would it be the right thing to do? Does, does that make any sense? Yeah, I, I think that makes sense, but it's not uh, very compelling to me, I think. <laughs> Fair enough. I you know, you can just fill out a survey. It was the, the trite <laughs> response, I suppose. I when you're Some phone calling, some polling. Yeah, that's right. If you want to have your uh, opinion registered. I think um, in very subtle ways, even large states, non-democratic ones are responsive to people's opinions. People's opinions do matter. I guess the question is, are you going to take that next level where when you're voting, you're legislating your opinion onto others effectively? And you know, of course, it's you're not sitting there as a philosopher king, but you are playing a role in saying, you know, this is going to be the policy and this is going to influence how others uh, are impacted. I think it's not not merely registering your opinion like maybe a, a survey might be. Um, so yeah. I think that sort of means you're sort of playing the, it's one thing to be sitting in the jury making the decision and another to express your opinion through an editorial or something like that. And I think the standards for those are, are going to be different. Yeah, that's fair. I also think about, you know, in criticism to my own point, <laughs> I think about something like, um, I don't know much about this, but I think about what I've seen about like Brexit or something. Often people will vote a certain way to symbolize something and then it will go through and they'll realize it's not in their own interests and they'll be upset about it after. Like you can have, you can have a kind of mismatching going on here or, you know, somebody voting for the underdog and then it's like, you know, it, it goes through and then it's like, oh no, this is not necessarily what I wanted to happen. Um, so there. No, yeah, I think that's right. Becomes a, I think people's politics, People's preferences and then their preferences about outcomes are probably divorced. You know, I, you know, I want to ensure that people have more jobs or something like that. That's my preference for an outcome. My policy preference, however, might be for something that doesn't lead to more jobs or something like that. So I think that's that's certainly common. Yeah, that's too bad. I don't like <laughs> don't don't have that happen. <laughs> Try not to let that happen. So, so like, I want to come back to this question, you know, what would be the norms for a Stoic engaging in politics? And I think it would be similar to the Epicurean in, in that 
you would not engage in politics incorrectly. Um, and so you're not, you're not assumed that it's not always good. You can do politics the wrong way. And the good way of politics has quite a high standard, I would say, because the Stoic is not just acting in justice by voting. They're, they're acting justly by voting knowledgeably, consciously doing their research, understanding, uh, reaching a certain bar. So I think the, the, the norms for engaging politics for the Stoic is to, I would say, understand what's required of you as a citizen and meet that bar through the effort that's required to get there. And my, I think that involves voting. I think that's a pretty low bar. I think it might actually involve a, a bit more than that. Um, it might involve some forms of you know, political assembly, forms of active research, things like this. But I, we can disagree, like Stoic to Stoic can disagree about the nitty gritty, but the bar is, I think you need to understand, you need to have an opinion about what's required you as of you as a citizen because you are a citizen. And then you have to do what's in your power or up to you to meet that bar. And that bar is going to involve probably a higher level of knowledge than we typically expect or see in the political realm today. Yeah, I suppose in terms of my concluding thoughts, as it were, this is a topic I've always been divided on personally. And I think I would push back on the sort of universalist view that everyone ought to be politically engaged. Uh, that said, there's a question there, you know, you've been pushing me in terms of, you know, what's the, you know, what are the actual requirements for being politically engaged? Can still a good number of people meet that bar where it's still a fine norm? So for, for example, you know, on Epictetus's list, he lists being a father, mother, husband, wife, and it seems plausible to me that those are good sort of central norms. The typical person ought to be married, have children, but it's not true that that is required of everyone. That view is just certain, certainly too strong. And I think my view perhaps might be closer to, about politics might be closer to that, that issue about thinking about, you know, whether you should be married or have children. Maybe it's a good norm for most people in terms of norm in the sense that, you know, it's a paradigmatic thing for most people and you ought to make it feasible for people to be able to do that, but isn't required as a sort of essential social role for everyone. And there shouldn't be that expectation that everyone occupy, occupy those roles. Well, and there shouldn't be that expectation. I think about the same way about parents, right? Like, you know, society tends to do better when more people want to be parents than not, but to pressure someone to be a parent who doesn't want to be is not a good thing or in, in many cases cannot be, is not a good thing. And so if you think of a citizen, you know, it's good. It's a good thing if more people than not are actively engaged, conscientious citizens, but let's not pressure the ones who don't know, who aren't involved to vote, for example, yeah. or to get involved at a superficial level because that, that can have side effects. Well put. I think that's, that's a good reminder. Probably a good spot to end too. Cool. All right, sweet. I hope this went. I hope you enjoyed this. Yeah, I think we, it was a. It was, we went all over. It was a nice platonic dialogue because I I don't think we landed anywhere. So you'll either be motivated <laughs> to be more passive or more involved, depending on how you took it. So good luck to you in whichever journey you take. I have some things to think about. 
Thanks again for listening to Stoa Conversations. If you found this conversation useful, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share it with a friend. And if you'd like to practice Stoicism with Michael and I, as well as others walking the Stoic path, we are running our three-week course on Stoicism Applied. It'll be live with a forum, interactive calls, and I think will be an excellent way for a group of people to become more Stoic together. So do check that out at stoameditation.com slash course. And if that's not to your fancy, you can find links to the Stoa app as well as the Stoa letter, our newsletter on Stoic theory and practice at stoameditation.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time.